This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hey everyone, welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie P. Today on this episode, I have a guest with me. We're going to call her B. Um, and she's going to be anonymous, but she wants to be able to share her story kind of as a, you know, she's done a lot of therapy and want to be able to share this story kind of as a client and working on her own journey and her own progress. And then she's also in the process of becoming a therapist and kind of being able to be on both sides of this as a client and then going into the field and being a therapist. We just thought it would make a good episode and kind of a story for people to hear and to resonate with and to be inspired with. So thanks for coming, B. Thanks for having me. So let's talk a little bit about, I mean, I know a lot about your story, but where would you, if you're telling your story, where do you typically start? I think that if I'm just telling a random person, then I usually will tell them where I am from, where I grew up. I lived abroad twice growing up during my middle school years and then moved to Russia my senior year of high school. And I feel like those experiences shaped me in a lot of different ways. And I feel like that's something that's kind of surfacy that like I'm okay sharing mm-hmm. with a random person. I feel like, I don't know, my I feel like my actual story probably starts from before I was born. I learned... I don't know, when I was in my 20s that my mom found out that she was pregnant with me because she had chest pains. Mm. And so my dad was out of town and she lived a couple blocks from the hospital. And so she got somebody to come over and watch my siblings and walked to the hospital. And the doctors thought that she had, oh my gosh, what's it called? Something in her lungs that... Like a virus? Or... No, it was like something that could kill her. Okay. And, oh, like a pulmonary embolism or something, oh, okay. something like okay. that. And so she was asked if there were any possible, if there was a possibility that she could be pregnant and she wasn't on birth control or anything. So she said, yes, there was a possibility that she could be pregnant and took a pregnancy test and found out that she was pregnant and felt she was completely alone because my dad was gone and felt like she, she was going to die. Mm -hmm. and that she was going to take her unborn child with her. Turns out that things ended up being okay. Um, I don't think that they ever figured out what the chest pain was. Hmm. But that's kind of, I would probably say, where my story started. Yeah. That, like, it it kind of started off a little traumatic. (laughs) Right, right. And just the stress of your mom, you know, worrying about what what is this? Is it going to come back? How is this going to work out? Right. So... Another big part of my story is that I have five brothers and I'm the only girl. Mm. Um, and and where do you fall in that? What number are you? I'm fourth okay. of six. So I was always told that I just came out strong-willed. <laughs> and um, In a good way or in a bad way? I think both. Mm. I, I think I felt growing up that it was more in a bad way, but I feel like as I've gotten older and talked to my parents more about my childhood and especially before I can remember mm-hmm. things, that it was more 
uh, some of the stories that I heard were more in a positive light. For example, my mom told me that I would stand up in my crib and shake the bars with such force that her and my dad would joke that I would grow up to rule the world someday. (laughs) And uh, I was told that I um, hated to be restricted in any way. I learned to walk when I was nine months old. Mm. I talked really early. I was a pretty articulate child. And um, but my mom also told me that because I hated to be restricted, that I would arch my back so much when she would change my diaper that she had to put her knee in my stomach to Mm. kind of pin me down uh, to change my diaper. And when I was learning to walk, so about nine months old, I got severe burns on my hands because I was walking along furniture, holding on, and we had a glass covering over our fireplace. Mm -hmm. And so I put my hands on the fireplace and... My mom tells it like I just stood there screaming Mm. because it seemed like I knew that if I took my hands off, I would fall. Um, And so she had to come over and take my hands off of the the glass. And I had um, second and third degree burns on both of my hands. Mm. I still have a scar on one of my hands, but it's actually pretty little. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that that was another experience at a very young age that was pretty pretty traumatic right and you know growing up with five brothers I I was an easy target Mm -hmm. and and so I was picked on a lot I was spoiled I will own that (laughs) um I never had to share a bedroom Mm -hmm. I never had to wear hand-me-down clothes but that was that was definitely a message that I got constantly from my siblings uh that I was spoiled and not just that I was spoiled, but that I was a spoiled brat. Mm, okay. And as long as I can remember, I've always uh, been a big feeler. That's just how I am. That's how I came. And I also was told often, it probably went hand in hand with being a spoiled brat, that I would throw temper tantrums like nobody's business. Mm. And, um, and that I wanted things the way that I wanted them. And that if I didn't get my way, that I would just throw myself on the floor and kick and scream and cry. Mm. And and my, my mom told me, I don't remember how old I was, but I was young at one point that she learned to tune me out hmm. because I guess I threw temper tantrums all the time. And I mean, I, I do have memories of throwing temper tantrums mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but I, I think a lot of times I felt like I wasn't heard and that that was the only way that I could be heard, mm-hmm. even though my mom tuned me out. Right. So. So you look back now, maybe having done some therapy and understanding more about yourself, how do you view that younger self? I, I think I have developed compassion for the younger me. I used to hate the younger mm-hmm. me because I felt like I felt like I never fit into the mold that I was supposed to fit into. And um, my mom and I are very different in that I'm very emotional and I'm outgoing and loud and can be overbearing. And my mom is like the total opposite. Mm. She's very quiet. She's very reserved. She's very private. Um, And so I always felt like I wasn't what my mom wanted. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom never really and still 
very, very rarely outwardly expresses emotions. And so I always felt like there was something wrong with me because I cried all the time, but my mom didn't cry. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, from, from a pretty early age, I, I, I felt like I was wrong. Like I wasn't, I wasn't what I was supposed to be. I wasn't who I was supposed to be. And mm-hmm. um, so I, ha- I have a lot of compassion for, for the little girl, but it took me a really long time yeah. to cultivate that compassion. Yeah. Yeah. So then are we at the place, the next step, like what brought you into therapy or is there more you want to say about teen years or moving abroad before we get there? I always really struggled with relationships, um, with friendships. I would attach to like one person and want that one person to be my very best friend or like my bosom buddy, if you know Mm -hmm. Anna Green Gables. And most of the kids my age, that's not really how they operated. They Mm. had lots of friends. Mm -hmm. And so... So that was tough for me because I just wanted somebody to be as devoted and invested in a relationship with me as I was with them. And that just didn't work out. So relationships were hard for me. Friendships were hard for me. And um, I never really understood why uh, mm-hmm. when I was growing up and teenage years and even into my 20s, um, relationships were difficult for me. And moving to Russia my senior year of high school was really tough. Uh, we moved from California, <laughs> mm. sunny, right, warm, to very dark and cold. And um, before we moved to Russia, I started struggling with eating disorder behaviors. And in Russia, my senior year was kind of where my eating disorder, I would say, fully developed. Mm. Um, and I was struggling with binging and purging. And that continued into my 20s. The first time I ever went to therapy was... I think when I was 16 and it was right before my birthday and I was just tired. I was just tired of life, tired of interacting with people and I just wanted a break, but we had a very high expectation family. And so we could only stay home from school if we were throwing up or had a fever. Mm. So there were no mental health days in my, in my home. And so I ended up uh, taking a lot of pills just to to make myself sick. Mm. Um, so that I could just take a few days off of life. And after I did that, my, my parents, my mom was kind of like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna put you in therapy. (laughs) And, um, I was pretty upset at that time because a year before I had mentioned to my mom that I thought that I had depression Mm. and she didn't think that I did and thought that I was fine. And looking back, like my mom was in pretty hard denial, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had to actually do something in order to go to therapy. So I started therapy um, and then my family moved to Russia. (laughs) So um, therapy didn't really continue Mm -hmm. until until I uh, got to college and had a full-blown eating disorder and a roommate of mine found out and begged me to go to therapy because she was really worried about me. Mm -hmm. So So you were how old at that time? I was 18. Okay. Yeah. And so what was that like for you? Were you, I mean, she begged you to go to therapy. Were you willing to go to therapy? Were you trepidatious about going to therapy? I was willing. I was pretty angry at first and was just like, leave me alone because I wanted my eating disorder because my eating disorder kind of became my best friend. Mm. And, but I, I eventually went because I cared enough about her and our relationship that Mm -hmm. if, if this was something that would like put her at ease, then I was willing 
to, to try. So talk a little bit more for people who might be listening, who know somebody with an eating disorder, but don't quite understand, like, how did your eating disorder become your best friend? Well, eating disorders, pretty much, they become everything in your world. It's it's constantly on your mind. You're constantly thinking about food and about weight and about exercise. And, and it's it's a way to... For a lot of people, it's a way to control when they feel out of control, even Mm -hmm. though when you really fully get into an eating disorder, you lose complete control. Right. But because it took up so much of my headspace, like it became um, it came it became like a coping mechanism and like a self-soothe and Mm -hmm. purging for me, um, I think was it was physical, but it was also emotional. And it was a way... So it was a release. Yeah, it was a release, like physically, but also emotionally. Right. Um, Because I don't feel like I learned growing up um, how to experience and express emotions. They were just... We just weren't supposed to have them. Yeah. And the only emotions that were expressed growing up were anger. was anger, like from my siblings and from me too. But I wasn't supposed to be angry because I was a girl and I was supposed to be a lady. Oh, right. Yeah. Ladies do not feel angry. Right. (laughs) And I heard that's not very ladylike probably a million times. (laughs) So what was that? Was that inpatient, outpatient therapy for the eating disorder? So it was outpatient initially. I started struggling with self-harm when I was in college, which was another release for me and was something that became pretty bad and um i was cutting myself and would would cut deep enough that i needed stitches every Mm. time i cut and for me it was also something that like i couldn't fix what was causing me pain emotionally but i knew how to take care of a wound Mm. and so for me it was almost like i can i can heal this physical thing well and it's also kind of tangible Right. Right. Like I can see it. Right. I can, I can see feel it. Yep. Where I can see a scab. The other stuff is more internal and abstract. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so um, I struggled with that for many years. Um, I struggled with the eating disorder off and on. Um, I was in outpatient therapy for most of my, my 20s. I, I took a break here and there from therapy. But when I was 26, I had relapsed with my eating disorder really bad and started experiencing physical effects of it, like passing out Mm. and throwing up blood. And so I had another friend who, um, I actually worked in residential treatment at the time Mm. as a staff and I loved it. Um, and I had a coworker who became a really, really good friend. And she sat me down one day and was like, you need to go inpatient. Mm. And at first I was like, who the hell are you? (laughs) Like, no, um, it's not a possibility. You know, I I can't, I don't have the money. I didn't have any mental health insurance at the Mm. time because this was before Obamacare. And um, so I I just was like, there's no way because treatment is expensive, Mm -hmm. very expensive. And after a lot of, you know, different conversations with, uh, people that were close to me and eventually with my parents, um, I, I decided to go inpatient at the Center for Change, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a residential treatment facility for 
that specializes in eating disorders. And and so did you know how serious it was? Like people around you were saying how serious it was. Did you have a sense for how serious it was? Um, I did when I started throwing up blood. That scared me uh-huh. because up to that point, I, I didn't really have any of the physical negative effects. Mm. And I mean, like I walked into treatment medically stable. I didn't look like I had an eating disorder. I, I was still, you know, according to BMI, which it depends on who you ask right. is, you know, doesn't really measure what it's supposed to measure, but I was over a normal BMI when I went into treatment. So that was something that when I was there, my therapist and I would argue over because I would be like, I'm medically stable, so I'm mm. fine. And when clearly I wasn't, and mm-hmm. it obviously wasn't just physical. Mm-hmm. So. So what was that experience like? How long were you in residential? So I was inpatient for a month and then I moved to residential. Um, and then I did day, day program for a month. So it was about three months total. And I quit working in treatment to go to treatment, mm. which was really tough. I didn't want anyone to know. I was really ashamed. And and some of that came from, from, from my family, to be honest. Mm-hmm. A week before I went into treatment, my mom asked me, are, are you sure you really want to do this? And mm-hmm. I said, no, mom, I don't want to go to treatment. Nobody wants to go to treatment. Like, I need to do this. Mm-hmm. So I had to fight, actually, pretty hard to go to treatment and had people telling me that it wasn't as bad as it was. Mm. And so it was interesting because I kind of had both sides. Right. Where, yes, there was recognition that it was bad. I don't know that I recognized how bad it was, but I had to fight to go to treatment. So when I first got there, it was really easy for me to be in the caretaker role, which is actually pretty common for people with eating disorders uh, to be caretakers of others. Mm -hmm. Did you, let me pause, let me, Mm because I know that you were a rec therapist um, and have been for many years. Were you a rec therapist at that point or just staff? Nope, I was just staff. Okay. I didn't do rec therapy until after treatment. Okay, okay. But I knew that that was what I wanted to do. Okay. When I went into the Center for Change. And in fact, I had applied to get into a master's program in rec therapy earlier the year that I went into treatment and I got the, the date, the deadline dates mixed up Mm. and missed the deadline for an essay that I had to write, but everything else was turned in. Mm. And, um, it's one of those things that I look back on and I really needed to go to the center for change. And if I had gotten my essay in on time, I would have gotten accepted Mm. and I never would have gone. Okay. So at the time, (laughs) It was pretty devastating right. and I was pretty upset, but looking back, I'm grateful. It kind of lined up the way it needed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what were some of your takeaways or like, did you like being residential? Like how, what was that struggle? A lot of people kind of struggle initially going inpatient. Yeah, it was pretty tough. The first week that I was, I was inpatient, I started getting really bad migraines and it was one of those things that I was like, okay, I'm finally taking care of my body. Why is my body like breaking mm-hmm. down now? Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of, I felt a lot of betrayal from my body, which was really hard. And, you know, but I was also, my parents paid for my treatment. And that was a point of tension between us uh, because I had other possible funding sources, but my parents wouldn't let me use them, which was frustrating because I was an adult. Mm. <laughs> 
but so I, I felt a lot of pressure that I needed to get through treatment as fast as possible. Okay. And so, you know, my therapist a couple days in was like, why don't you take a day and, you know, rest so that maybe that will help your migraines. And I was like, no, like I'm, my parents aren't paying, you know, a thousand dollars a day for me to lay in bed. Yeah. And so I would still go to groups. I would lay down behind the couch with the hat over my head to block out the light. I was very like, no, Just I will. Just push through. I will do this. this. Yes. Yeah. And this is a little embarrassing, but I'll share it. I have a baby blanket that I still have and may or may not still sleep with. And um, I had brought it with me to the Center for Change. And at that point, it was so old and tattered that it was just two pieces of fabric. Mm. And I had it there for a week. And after I'd been there for a week, I came back from a therapy session and it was sitting behind the nurse's station counter. And I was like, what is that doing there? And one of the techs said, you can't have this. And I lost it like I have never lost it in Mm. my entire life. I don't really enjoy the F word, but I probably said it 30 times and was just, I, you know, I mean, I just freaked out. I had, was going into panic mode. I was hyperventilating. And when I asked why I couldn't have it, they said it was because it was too scarf-like and mm, for danger, like safety right, reasons. For, for safety reasons. And because I worked in treatment, I was like, I know like what that means. And you've taken away every avenue for us to even hang ourselves because we had like pull away rods in the closets mm. and like the hooks in the bathroom. You couldn't pull, you know, put anything or like they wouldn't, they can't, couldn't hold any weight. And so, yeah, so I was just like, this is stupid. Like I, 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 I am you outside uh-huh. of here. Like, I know what you're thinking. And like, and have you seen the thing? Like, it's so worn out. It would fall apart right. if somebody tried to use it to, to hang themselves or to strangle themselves. Um, and so it, it was just one of those things that was so symbolic of, like, I had to give up everything mm-hmm. in order to gain myself back. And that was kind of the last thing that... I mean, that was my comfort. That was my constant throughout my mm-hmm. whole life. And Sounds like it, there was an attachment there. Absolutely. There was a huge attachment. And, you know, I had to quit my job to go into treatment. And, you know, th- there was just so much that I had to put on hold or give up to go. And that was kind of my one my one thing, my one safety, uh-huh. my one comfort. And it was taken away. And it was just kind of symbolic of what my eating disorder had taken away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and I, yeah, I was, I was a mess and I was like, I'm leaving because I'm an adult. So you can't keep me here because I'm an adult and you took away my blanket. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yep. No, sounds so adultish, but luckily I had an amazing therapist who had me pegged from Mm. day one and, you know, kind of worked with me and helped me see that I, I needed the help and I needed to stay. And so I did. And I worked really hard. Part of it was, you know, because I felt like I needed to get through treatment as quickly as possible. But another part was because I really wanted to have a a life again and not have this thing control me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm very grateful. I, by the time I left, I, I mean, I really wanted to leave, but I was also very sad to leave because I was sad to lose the relationships with Mm -hmm. the other patients and with the staff there and the routine all of that that yeah yeah the safety it was like 
the Center for Change was the first place that I felt safe to just completely be me, Mm. whatever that was. I never told a lie when Mm -hmm. I was there, and lying is like... (laughs) That's what you do when you have an eating disorder or an addiction of any kind, mm-hmm. really, right? To hide it or cover right. it up. But I, I decided when I went in that, like, I, that was so exhausting and I was just so tired of doing that. And so I just, I just was me, mm-hmm. whatever that looked like, whether that was totally freaking out because my blanket was taken, mm-hmm. right? Or learning how to be a support to a friend rather than a caretaker, mm-hmm. Um you know, and those those kinds of things. Which I think is so great because sometimes when I have pay- clients that will come in and they'll say, like, I need to work on who I am, right? And it seems this nebulous, abstract, like, you know, like they have a hard time gaining traction with that. And, and so sometimes I'll say, like, what you were, like, be you. Mm-hmm. Like, and they're like, well, I don't know who that is. That's why I'm here, right? And I'm like, mm-hmm. well... I mean, if you're sad, cry. If you're happy, smile. Like that, like you find yourself in that process, but you've got to let yourself like really specifically be in this moment. Even if you don't know who you are, this is part of that process of this is what I feel right now. This Mm -hmm. is, you know, what I'm thinking right now. Yeah. And even while I was there, I, I really had a hard time outwardly expressing my emotions. And I think a lot of that came from my upbringing, really, mm-hmm. and just feeling like it wasn't okay to, to cry. I was also told a lot that the whole world didn't need to know my problems. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and asked, I had a very abusive brother, I guess that's also <laughs> in my history, and when I would have a normal response to his abuse, I was asked why I'm crying and that mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to cry about. And so... And and not just that it was abusive, it was scary. Yeah, it was scary. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, I worried that he would kill my, my mom or one of my siblings or, or even myself. Mm-hmm. Like, I, it, it, it was a legitimate fear for my life. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it took me a long time to realize the impact that that had mm-hmm. on me as well. And dad was gone a lot. Dad was right. Gone like a lot. that's part of the reason you guys were abroad was mm-hmm. what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Yep, he was gone a lot. And and for him, it always felt like everybody else was more important than we were. Um, and we would always hear that family comes first, but that was never actually demonstrated. Um, I think that he probably felt that way. Um, I don't think that it was a lie when he would say that. Mm-hmm. I think he just didn't really know what that looked like. And, I mean, he, he's a workaholic. So mm-hmm. that's, you know. So he, he was at home a lot. But um, when I was at the Center for Change and trying to learn how to be with and experience and express what I was feeling in the moment, um, I still really struggled with that. And so... I would ask um, a tech that I trusted if they would take me down to, it was called the movement room. Um, It was where we did yoga and and things like that so that I could kick a ball against the wall. Mm. And something about that, um, like physically moving, allowed me to connect emotionally. And so I would kick the ball against the wall as hard as I could and kind of express some of that anger that I was feeling to get to what was underneath. Uh, to the hurt and the sadness Mm, and mm -hmm. I would kind of just crumple up on the floor and just cry cry and cry and cry until I was done crying Mm. but I didn't really 
know how to do that and be okay before I went to the Center for Change. Any other shifts that you noticed or takeaways? Um, I, when I went into the Center for Change, I was pretty angry at God. And that was something that I worked on there uh, through 12 Steps. And a therapist who I actually had known not as a therapist, um, she was my parents' neighbor from when I was 17. And she, she worked with me kind of individually to work through some of that. And, and so that was something that I worked on so that I, like, I didn't, I wasn't so angry at God and feel and and carrying this, this anger. I I worked a lot on forgiveness of Mm -hmm. others, um, but also forgiveness of myself because at, at that time I, I, I engaged in sexual play when I was a kid that I never talked about. I wouldn't touch in therapy anytime a therapist would get close to it whatever behavior I was engaging in at the time, whether it was an eating disorder or cutting or even a suicide attempt, would go out of control. So the focus had to change um, because I felt so ashamed and innately bad and wrong. And the Center for Change was kind of the first place that I was able to broach that because I was in a safe place and I didn't really have means to hurt myself or... Mm -hmm you know, engage in eating disorder behaviors. And so that was also something that I felt like I could finally let go of and move past. So that was definitely a shift. And um, just being comfortable in my own skin, because mm. I I don't think that I ever felt like I was comfortable in my own skin before then. Mm-hmm. But I, I left treatment with a lot of magical thinking Okay. And fell flat on my face. <laughs> okay, so talk about the magical thinking and then that fall from grace. So so I worked really hard. And by the time I discharged, I had gotten my job back, but at a different location. And so I was able to still do the same work that I loved, but in a, in a new location with mm-hmm. new people. Um, I, could, I kind of had a fresh start. Mm-hmm. And... I just, like, I, I felt like I had done all of the work that I needed to do. I, like, I felt good. I was happy. I was content with myself. I was comfortable in my skin. I felt like I had the knowledge and the tools to be successful. Um, I learned better boundaries, you know, those kinds of things. And so I just, you know, most of the time when you discharge from any kind of you know, inpatient or residential treatment, you come up with a relapse prevention plan. Mm-hmm. I totally half-assed my relapse prevention plan because I was like, I don't, I don't need it. Like, mm. I'm not going to relapse. I'm good. I'm golden. Mm-hmm. Like, I will never struggle with this again. And looking back, I feel pretty foolish, especially because I worked in treatment <laughs> and, you know, knew that most of our kids would go home and struggle. But, but that wasn't me. Right. Like I, you knew better. I knew better, right? And so, you know, when my therapist would kind of try to get me to really think through my relapse prevention plan, I'm like, I mean, yeah, I'll call someone if I'm having an urge, or you know, <laughs> like just something kind of to to placate her, but never really thinking through it because I really, truly, honestly believed that. I would never want to engage in an eating disorder Mm. again. I would never get to where I was before I went to treatment, um, all of those things. And that is not reality Mm -hmm. for anyone. Right. (laughs) So 
I did fairly well. I discharged actually right before Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving is a really difficult holiday for people who have or have struggled with eating disorders. Right. But I got through it really well. Like, I, I rocked it. And it was, like, the first Thanksgiving, I think, that I didn't have turkey because I don't really like turkey. Mm. But I always got it because it was expected. Oh, yeah. Like, and so I love carbs. <laughs> and so I'm pretty sure that I just had mashed potatoes and stuffing and rolls. Oh. That was all I had because that was all that I wanted. Mm-hmm. And... I learned that it was okay to, to eat what I want. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I mean, it's not healthy to have that for every meal every day. Right. But that was what I learned. Nor is it easy or nor is it healthy to eat like Thanksgiving every day. Right. Like it's the right. one thing a year. Exactly. So, so that, that was like liberating for me that I didn't feel like I had to eat whatever this expected Thanksgiving meal was. Mm-hmm. And got back into working, and it was probably a couple of months, and I don't really even remember what what triggered it, or actually, that's not true. I So when you're at the Center for Change, you have to get weighed every day, mm. but you're not allowed to see your weight. Okay. And, um, but you are allowed to ask uh, your dietitian if you are the same or if you've gained or if you've lost, you just can't know the number, the number. Um, and the dietitian would always like try and not tell you basically mm. and be like, well, what's that about? Why do you need to know? You know, all of those kinds of things. Um, but another part of my magical thinking was that I, we weren't allowed to exercise like at all. I mean, we mm. did yoga, but it was not real yoga <laughs> and like we weren't even allowed to stand for too long. Okay. Uh, we weren't allowed to bounce our legs. I mean, it was like, it was pretty strict and intense. And while I was there, I learned how to intuitively eat and listen to my body and kind of listen to my hunger and fullness cues and uh-huh. learn what those were. And I maintained my weight uh, while I was there. And so another part of my magical thinking, which <laughs> again, looking back, I'm like, wow, wow. Wow. There was this thought of, okay, I can maintain my weight with what I eat, but then I can leave and exercise and then I'll lose weight. Okay. Because although I was much more comfortable in my body and comfortable in my own skin, I still had this, like, I just want to be in the normal BMI, Mm. like range. And the weight and size that I was at when I left treatment is probably where my body wants to be and Mm -hmm. is the best place for my body. But I still just wanted to be within a normal mm-hmm. BMI. Um, and so that was another part of my magical thinking. And so when I left treatment, I saw my dietitian once a week and I got weighed every time that I saw my dietitian. And different dietitian than nope, it. same okay. dietitian, um, thankfully, and learned that I was gaining mm. weight um, after I left. And, you know, she she tried to normalize it. She said this happens a lot and you know, it's okay. Don't freak out. But I freaked out. (laughs) And so I I held on for, you know, for a good number of weeks, maybe a couple of months, um, trying to stick to my, you know, intuitive eating Mm -hmm. and the way that I was taught to, to eat and to listen to my body. But eventually some of the same things showed up again. And I, I would skip meals. I would, I didn't binge and purge as much. And I, in fact, I didn't really binge much at all, Mm -hmm. but I would still purge sometimes. Okay. Like with a normal amount of food. So by the next summer, 
um, I was pretty much like it was a full relapse. Mm. And the therapist, I continued working with a therapist I was in treatment with and uh, told her, like, I don't want to come back because I want my eating disorder. This is like, this is what I'm choosing. And so I quit working with her for a while and with my dietitian. Mm. And, and, you know, kind of was back in my eating disorder for, for several months. And a similar thing happened where I had a friend who was really worried about me and the same kind of thing, like asked me to go back to therapy and to, to try again. And so I did, and I, I had to do a, like an initial intake assessment. Did you go back to Center for Change? I did go back to Center for Change, and I went back to my old therapist, but mm. I still had to do an initial assessment of my behaviors. And I told her before I went in, I know if I tell you what I'm actually doing, that like it's going to make me want to lie. It's going to make me mm. want to tell you you know, what I think that you want to hear um, so that I don't get recommended for inpatient again. And... I didn't. I ended up being honest with her and she, she was reluctant to meet with me on an outpatient basis and told me that I needed to meet with my dietitian so that the two of them can, could consult. And, and, and it was basically like, if you don't turn things around, then, then we'll recommend inpatient and we won't work with you if you don't Mm. do that. Mm -hmm. And so so I stopped and it's something that still kind of baffles me and my clinical team mm-hmm. <laughs> that I like that I just decided to stop. And, and so, do you have any like theories about that now this much later? I think honestly, a big part of it was um, because of the relationship that I have with my therapist mm-hmm. and because I didn't want to start over with somebody new. Mm-hmm. And I think that I had gotten to a place where I recognized that I was doing poorly and then mm-hmm. I didn't want to go back down that road. And so it, it was kind of this, okay, if, if this is what I need to do to maintain this relationship, then I'll do it. And I actually had a similar experience earlier on when there was something that I really wanted to do, but I knew that I couldn't do it if I had an eating disorder. And mm-hmm. so I stopped my mm-hmm. behaviors and then that thing didn't end up happening. And so I went back mm. to them. So I, I think that that was probably the biggest reason why I stopped at that point. Mm-hmm. Then that therapist was out uh, for, I don't know, like two months because she had back issues and mm. had to have surgery. And so I was referred to a different therapist at the Center for Change, which I had worked with in groups and stuff like that when I was inpatient. And um, she recommended that I do um, a comprehensive dialectical behavioral therapy program. Mm. And I emailed my old therapist to ask what her thoughts were on it. And she totally supported that. And in in fact said, I thought that you would benefit from this a long time, but if I suggested it, you would have come back with, you just don't want to meet with me. You're abandoning Mm -hmm. me. Right. (laughs) Which is probably very true, Mm -hmm. but because it was a therapist that I didn't have as much a connection with and an attachment to, I was willing to to try. Mm-hmm. And so why program. why recommending the dialectic behavioral therapy? Um, because I still really struggled with emotional regulation and like interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And although I learned skills and got better at managing my emotions, they still were pretty dysregulated and incredibly intense. 
And so, and I was, I was having a hard time. Like I've, I've been able to continue functioning in my life, but like I was, I was miserable. Mm. And um, so were those like, were those issues, like, were they known or talked about at all when the eating disorder was the kind of the primary focus or did that like, once you kind of had stopped some of the eating disorder behaviors and cleared some of that, here's this other issue. It wasn't really, it wasn't really addressed when I was inpatient at the Center for Change, but in my earlier 20s, a lot of the similar behaviors and like the self-harm getting really bad. And I don't even remember how many times I overdosed, just not wanting to live anymore. And a lot of that having, having to do with relationships Mm -hmm. and feeling abandoned and worthless and yeah, just empty. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those things were still there. And I think that it wasn't as much of a focus when I was inpatient because, because the eating disorder was such a central focus Mm -hmm. and I hadn't self-harmed in quite a while. Mm. Um, When you were um, working on that earlier in your 20s, was there a diagnosis or anything like that with that? I was never actually diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, but I (laughs) very well could have been, Mm. Um, you know, especially now uh, being in school and working in the field, looking at the criteria for diagnosis, I Mm -hmm. pretty much met them. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I will say there are a lot of therapists in the field and and I can go either way who really just think labels are harmful. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes like, especially if you're insurance paneled, like you have to give a diagnosis. And I think labels can be good to a point and beyond that point, they're not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes, especially like with a borderline personality disorder diagnosis, therapists can be quite hesitant to bring that up and to talk about it mm-hmm. uh, just because of the shame that it can create or even more acting out once that diagnosis is talked about. Yeah, and I think that the therapist that I was working with in my earlier 20s, because I am a, I was a psychology major, mm. and so I kind of self-diagnosed um, in my abnormal psychology class <laughs> when I was learning about all of these disorders, and I was like, "Holy crap! Like this, this describes me to a T." Um, and my therapist said, "You know, you have a lot of the traits, but I don't think that I would diagnose you," which I think ended up being a blessing mm-hmm. for the reasons that you described, because I think that. I did struggle so much with my identity that if I had been given that diagnosis, I would have just attached onto it and played it out even more, which actually ended up happening when I started the comprehensive DBT program after Mm -hmm. I was at the Center for Change. Okay. So let's talk about that. So that therapist recommended it. Your other therapist said, I support it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I started a comprehensive DBT program, which included individual therapy with a specially trained DBT therapist and a skills group weekly and skills coaching, which basically meant that I had access to my therapist like 24 seven if I was in crisis, which totally backfired um, (laughs) for me. And I actually even expressed concern about having that access because I I think at that point I was self-aware enough to recognize that I created crises so that people would show up for me in the way that I wanted them to because I didn't know what I needed or how to express what I needed from other Mm -hmm. people. Or trust people like every day, right? Like Mm -hmm. you may have showed up yesterday, but what about today? Right. And what about tomorrow? Yep, exactly. And so, which 
caused a lot of problems in my relationships because I would burn people out. Mm -hmm. And then the relationship would explode. So when you raised concerns, what did they say? I don't entirely remember. And I can't remember if I if I raised the concern with the DBT therapist or with the therapist that recommended, uh, referred me. I don't remember. But, but I think that it was kind of like, okay, you know, I appreciate the concern and it's okay. Like, mm. you'll be fine. Mm. Um, kind of a thing. And you're like, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know that that was a conscious right. thing, but, but I, I was, I was, I was resistant at first because I was like, if I'm put into this category, then I will play that mm. person. And I was pretty dang good at playing that person. And it was a real struggle for me. And my relationship with my therapist, my DBT therapist was pretty tumultuous. And and I have since realized that she was very reactive to me. I'm not entirely sure why, but I suspect that I definitely triggered things in her and there were things about me and my story that were similar to her and her mm-hmm. story um, when she was my age. And so for whatever reason, she was very reactive to me and which then made me be even more reactive. And so it was just this constant push pull and you know, I tried to quit so many different times and was constantly told that I made a 14 month commitment to this program. And so that was kind of held over my head. Mm. And, you know, I would, I, I mean, I definitely tested the relationship. I definitely pushed and, you know, like, are you going, are you going to stay? Mm-hmm. And she didn't. Mm. And in fact, to this day, we will not even acknowledge my existence. Mm. So that was pretty traumatic for me. Right. And I mean, granted, I was crazy at the Right, time. but that is part of the disorder, right? Like, I can't believe that you're actually going to show up. So I keep testing, testing, testing. Then you leave and it's like, I told you so. Yeah. But then that abandonment kicks in a whole different level. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I, I can recognize that I was an incredibly difficult client and, you know, now being almost a, a clinician myself in therapy, um, I have a hard time understanding how anyone could respond to a client the way that she responded to me. Mm. And it took me a really long time to work through that and um, to recognize that while I absolutely played a part because I was in the relationship, that it wasn't all about me. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, you were the client. Yeah. So, and, and unfortunately, I mean, that happens in therapy. You know, there can be some unhealthy therapists in the field and who, you know, haven't done their own work. I often say, like, a therapist can't take a client somewhere that they haven't themselves gone, right? They c- can't do work with a client that they themselves have not done. And I think that there's enough therapists who, you know, would be opposed to their own therapy. Um, or did just enough work to explain some things, but then, you know, could do some damage in the profession. Yeah. And, you know, it, like it's, it's hard because there were people that I knew that also had her as a therapist and, and she was helpful for Mm -hmm. them. And, you know, which just furthered my belief that something's wrong with you. Something's wrong with me. And so, so that, yeah, that was, that was really tough and kind of 
in fact, while I was working with her, I went back to self-harm. My mm-hmm. eating disorder kicked up again. and Because that's how you knew to cope. Mm-hmm. Even though you had learned it wasn't healthy to cope that way, like that's what's kind of this default setting. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, at one point, this therapist said, you know, your behaviors have gotten worse since starting this program. If I were your parents, I would wonder like what the heck is going on. Mm. And it was one of those things that like I look back and I'm like, because she made it about me and there was no like maybe I'm doing something mm-hmm. that's not working. Kind of like let's look at this dynamic that's going on between the two of us and see if we can change it. Right, right. And I mean, she did try at different points. She tried different things with me, and but it ultimately never worked because she was reactive to me. Mm-hmm. And I could feel the reactivity, which just triggered my reactivity. Mm-hmm. So, so a- after, you know, she decided that she was done with me, I... Um, overdosed twice in two weeks. Mm. The first time I didn't tell anyone I overdosed on sleeping pills and luckily I woke up. Mm. Um, I didn't go to the hospital or anything like that. That was probably my most serious attempt in that I didn't end up ever telling anybody. And then the following week I overdosed again on something that had a sleeping med in it, but that I knew could really damage me and could potentially kill me. And Luckily, my roommate came home and I was like, out of it. I was so out of it. And like, I, I remember bits and pieces. I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember she had me sit on my bed and I had a box of cereal in my room for some reason. And I knocked it over and then I just like stomped, like stepped on the cereal Mm -hmm. and like smashed it on my floor. (laughs) I don't know why I remember that, Mm -hmm. but yeah, so she called my brother. My brother came in and got me and took me to the hospital. And I also self-harmed pretty bad after that whole event happened. And I was in grad school working on my master's degree in recreational therapy. And this was around Christmas. And so I went into this new semester with my therapist, like, completely abandoning me. And mm. and it was pretty rough. Mm-hmm. So talk just a minute about, like, what a recreational therapist does. So a recreational therapist works with people with disabilities, whether that's mental, emotional, physical, uh, or vulnerable populations like uh, the elderly. And we utilize recreation and leisure to improve quality of life. So I, I worked at an inpatient psychiatric hospital. And so I would run group with the patients and, and, bring activities for them to do to educate them about leisure or to give them a different experience or to give them a, a leisure coping skill that they could use at home mm. um, to expose them to different activities and things that might bring joy mm-hmm. to their lives. Cause a lot of times, um, especially in the mental health side of things, you know, if you're struggling with depression or anxiety or those kinds of things, the first thing to go is leisure and recreation, right. which is so vital to, you know, to our well-being mm-hmm. as humans. Mm-hmm. Okay. So. so you're going into this semester having lost a therapist in a kind of horrible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I look back and it's a miracle that I made it through the semester and passed my classes. But I, I found another therapist that also did DBT. I don't know why I felt like I wanted to go back to DBT, <laughs> but I felt like I needed somebody that understood, like, 
the, the process yeah. of DBT. I mean, I also think just knowing you, um, like if something's been recommended, especially by somebody that you trust, which the one therapist, you know, was, and it didn't work out, like you're still going to finish it. Like you're like, oh, no, no, no. Like <laughs> maybe somebody else, but I'm going to finish this. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> you're, you. You have me pegged. <laughs> so I, I worked with this therapist for a couple of weeks, and a couple of weeks in, I told her the story of what had happened with my previous therapist, which is really difficult for me to do and very vulnerable because mm-hmm. I had to share my part of things, which was very vulnerable, and there's a lot of shame in my behavior towards the end of our relationship. And after that session, she told me that she couldn't work with me anymore. Oh. (laughs) And so she said it was because, like, she had overbooked herself and she was taking on new clients when really she didn't have time for new clients. Okay. I don't know that I believe that even (laughs) now. Um, (laughs) I I definitely wouldn't be surprised if she heard my story and was like, I cannot work with this person. (laughs) So... She rec- she recommended an- another therapist that that did specialize in DBT, and I met I went and met with them, and the first session I was like, this is not going to work. Mm. <laughs> um, but she had a colleague, who, somebody that I knew had as a therapist, and and who a different friend of mine did group with, and so I asked both of them what they thought about this therapist, and they both said that she was great, and so. Um, I started working with her and she's a saint Mm. because she's worked with me since that time. I still work with her and she is so non-reactive, which is what I needed. And she did fire me (laughs) at one point um, as her client, but it actually ended up being a good thing for me because I took a couple of months off and then went back and asked if I were to commit to certain things, if she would continue seeing me and she said, yes. Mm. And so it kind of repaired some of that. I think some of that abandonment. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I mean, you know, sometimes therapists have to draw this boundary um, so that they're not misused or abused by clients. Right. And so they may draw the boundary even therapeutically. Mm -hmm. And, but I think it's also important. Like if the, the client comes back then and says, can we work through this? For the therapist to say, yeah, like, so that the boundaries aren't this exclusionary thing that happens to people. Mm -hmm. And my experience of that boundary was that it was said and done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially with my first DBT therapist who wouldn't respond to any of my calls or emails asking if, because she recommended that I go inpatient to a DBT program, but it just wasn't an option for me, Mm -hmm. nor did I think that it would be good for me again, because I like attach on to that identity. And Mm -hmm. I just knew that it wouldn't be in my best interest. And she said, like, you know, if I would go and work with a different therapist or do something and work through some of my attachment stuff, then I could come back and work with her. But then because of some of my behaviors, um, she stopped responding to me and Mm. like never did to this day. Mm. And I've con I mean, it's been several years since I've tried to contact her, but a year after, two years after, three years after, four years after, I would send her an email and just say, I, I still would really like some closure. And she just never, mm. never responded. So, but I, I worked with my current therapist and um, she was great. I still super struggled <laughs> with a lot of different things. Although I never, I never self-harmed or attempted suicide. 
mm. while working with her. So that was kind of the end of my relationship with my first DBT therapist is kind of my anniversary for not engaging in those self-destructive behaviors anymore. Mm -hmm. Even though I threatened, <laughs> I threatened them. And was that more of a test? I think it was a test and a cry for help. Mm. Um, because I think that there were times when I really genuinely felt like I did not know how to hold what I was experiencing, mm -hmm. um, and felt like I couldn't handle it. So that was kind of your, maybe twisted, but that was your way of saying, I, I need something and I'm uncomfortable that I need something and I don't know how to ask for what I need. I don't even know what I need. So here, yeah. it's a threat, right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, and it was always everybody else's fault. And it took me a long time to realize that I was really good at playing the victim. You mm -hmm. helped me realize that, <laughs> actually. And so, yeah, I, I worked with this DBT therapist and she, she and I actually never really did DBT because DBT was attached to trauma for me. Right. I mean, although she, we would talk about the skills that I already knew and things like that, we never, we never actually really did DBT. And she's like, I do not claim any <laughs> responsibility for your like knowledge or experience with DBT. And when she fired me, I worked with a different therapist for a little bit. And during that time, I found out that I, I had sexual trauma in my childhood. And I, I was talking <laughs> to my therapist and was on this like, I'm innately bad and wrong because I did these things when I was a child. And I don't know where I learned about sex, but I did sexual things. Um, and it kind of came up again uh, because I was dating um, mm. and and things like that. And so it, it it surprised me, actually, that it came up. And I was like, oh, I haven't completely worked through this because of some of my physical and emotional reactions to being physical with, uh, with a partner. And so my therapist at the time said, what do you know about sex? Or what did you know about sex as a five-year-old? And I told her and she said, what five-year-old do you know that knows that much about sex? Mm -hmm. And I kind of shrugged and she said, I have a five-year-old. Let me tell you what she knows about sex. She ran into the living room the other day and said, look, mom, I have a penis. That's what five-year-olds know about sex. And she said, I'm not saying that something happened to you or that you should go on a monkey search. All I'm saying is that you had to have learned about it from somewhere. Like five-year-olds don't just know mm -hmm. what I knew. And I had had several therapists in the past ask me if there was any trauma or abuse there. And I still have no memory of my trauma. And so the answer was always no. And it wasn't until a therapist put it in that way for me that I finally was like, okay, I'm going to ask my parents which was mortifying because sex is like the most taboo subject mm. in my home growing up and even now. And so it was New Year's Eve. My parents were living in Germany again at the time, and they were flying back to Germany the next day. And I sat them down and I said, I've had more than one therapist tell me I was overly sexualized as a child, but I have no idea where I learned about sex. Do you? And my mom said, well, actually, <laughs> then the phone rang. Oh, <laughs> and my mom went to, to answer it. And my poor dad, <laughs> like, you know, he was just kind of like, what brought this up? Why are you asking these questions? You know, and luckily my mom was not on the phone for very long. So she came back and she said, well, of course we, of course we know where you learned about sex. You were molested. You knew that. 
And it just like completely blew me away. Mm. And I was like, excuse me, what? (laughs) What do I know? (laughs) You know? And she was like, you were molested. And I mean, I just was like. Because you didn't know. Yeah. I like, I didn't even know what to think or say or, and I had this flood of emotions and I almost just broke down crying because there was a sense of relief actually. Um, because it was like all of a sudden, everything that I had struggled with and been through made sense because for a lot of, for a lot of my life, especially in my twenties at kind of the darkest times, like at my very core, I could feel that there was something wrong, but it didn't make sense. And I didn't know what it was. And I tried to fix it, but like nothing I did Mm -hmm. worked. And, um, well, and, and so many abuse victims just end up concluding that it's something wrong with them. Right. Right. And, and there are a lot of things and experiences that I had that validated that, Mm -hmm. that there was something wrong with me in in my world, in my Mm -hmm. belief system. And so, so I was able to ask my parents a lot of questions. I didn't break down. I shut down actually, because I wanted to protect my parents. Uh, Mm -hmm. Because they were moving back to Germany. They were living halfway across the world. And I didn't want them to worry about me. And so if I stayed even kill and all of this. That caretaking again. uh Uh-huh. Then then they wouldn't worry. And they they wouldn't, like, I don't know. I don't know what I thought that they would do. But so I learned that I was three. And I was molested by a male babysitter who was 17. And I I told my mom when I was three. Um... And she, she told me that, you know, I, I told her that, that I had seen my abuser's private parts and that he had seen mine. And so my mom started asking me questions and, and I was a very articulate child. And so I was able to tell her and describe to her, you know, what had been happening to mm-hmm. me. And so my mom, my parents called his parents and the police um, he came over to my parents' house and apologized to them. I can't even imagine what that would have been like as a parent. And um, and and the police were called. He admitted to it, and he was he was molesting several girls mm-hmm. um, that I knew, including his his younger sister. And so he was removed from the home. I don't know where he went. My mom doesn't remember. Um, Like, I don't know if he went to a sex offender, like, rehab-type place Mm -hmm. for juveniles or if he went to juvie. But, you know, he was removed from the home, and we never saw him again. And so, you know, when when my parents told me this, my mom was like, I thought that's why you've been in therapy all of these years. Hmm. And I said, no, I've been in therapy because I engaged in sexual play as a child and have felt like I was innately bad and wrong. And... It's one of those things that, like, my parents were just floored. And I went through so many emotions, kind of reassessing my whole life. Mm. And, you know, I was angry. I was sad. I was hurting. I had to grieve. You know, all of these, all of these different emotions. But I, like, I looked back on when I was inpatient at the Center for Change. I did family therapy every week with my parents. And I'm like, how did this not come up? (laughs) Like... Um, you know, which, which speaks to the unhealthy dynamic in my family of not expressing, not talking about, um, just pretending like everything's okay. And so I feel like that coming out was kind of, 
that was like the missing piece mm-hmm. for me in finally being able to work through the things that were mm-hmm. holding me back. Well, and, and often, I mean, that's not an uncommon story that a child who is sexually abused on some level then engages in sexual play. Like play is how kids try to make sense of their world. Mm-hmm. Um, but without knowing that that had happened previous, right? You just had this, like, I remember sexual play, but where in the world would I do that? Like, where would that come from? Yeah. Yeah. And it, I mean, it, it literally never crossed my mind. And it's one of those things that I look back on and I'm like, how many teenagers did I work with mm-hmm. that had sexual, like I had like every single telltale sign of sexual abuse, but it never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. And so uh, one of the therapists that I was working with at the time, we started working on some of that trauma work and and some of her philosophies or what she was trying to get me to see didn't match up with my feelings um, and views on things. And I think that she was trying to help me recognize that I was being a victim and, and allowing this experience to kind of justify me being a victim. But her way of going about me seeing that didn't work uh, because she she communicated that like I was on the same level as my abuser and I just didn't agree with that. As a five-year-old. As a five-year-old. And so I, I pushed back, but I tried really hard to see where she was coming from and, and tried to see what it was that she was trying to communicate with me and um, like I wrote a song to kind of process like what's my part because whether or not I was accountable or responsible for it I still affected other people's lives Uh and having to sit with that and hold that and you know just really tried to own and hold my part but definitely pushed back against that like we're on we're on the same Mm -hmm. level that Um, you would have like I mean this is where you know child on child sexual play I mean, it gets complicated, right? Because these are kids who aren't sexually aware doing sexual things Mm -hmm. versus like a 17-year-old is a sexual being, right? They're sexually aware and then they do things to the sexually unaware child. Right. That's a different dynamic. Right. Exactly. And... That was how, like, what what I thought mm-hmm. and how I felt about it. And because I continued to push back uh, against this idea, she told me that she wasn't going to work with me on trauma anymore. Mm-hmm. So, a repeat of you right. know this, I'm not going to work with you anymore, and you, you're too much, or mm-hmm. you know. And she said, I'll still work with you on your relationship dynamics, um, but I think that you need to go see somebody else to work on the trauma piece and do EMDR, for example. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm sitting there thinking relationships and trauma, like they're so intertwined. Right. How can you work on one without the other? And I was so blindsided that I decided not to go back um, to her. And although, you know, she kind of set this back, it, it was a weird, it was a weird experience because I ultimately decided not to go back, but it was as a result of feeling betrayed mm-hmm. and blindsided by her. And so that was when I started working with you mm-hmm. and, and I still work with my DBT therapist and, and the, the past couple of years, I feel like I like have final, like finally have kind of come into my own mm-hmm. and, and, and have recognized a lot of how my childhood and my trauma and the dysfunction in my family, um, continue to impact 
my present Mm -hmm. and how I did relationships and how I viewed the world and how I viewed myself and yeah recognizing how and in what ways I was continuing to play and stay a victim Mm -hmm. and have it be everyone else's fault including yours Mm -hmm. at one point (laughs) Um, And and I will say, like, a lot of therapists won't work with a client if they're working with a different therapist. mm -hmm. And I think there are times, like, I've I've had that experience with some clients where I'm like, wait a minute, what's my role in here? Like, why are we working with me when you have another therapist? Or why do you have three therapists and you want to work with me? (laughs) Like, I'm not sure what my role is. And, you know, sometimes, like, working with sex addiction, I'm like, you have multiple relationships with women. Like, that's your acting out. Mm-hmm. And now I'm the fourth female therapist. Like, I don't want to do that, right? Yeah. And so I think it's it's not common mm-hmm. for a client to have two therapists. Mm-hmm. Both of us know about each other. Like, I knew about her from the get-go. Mm-hmm. And yet it's worked, and there were reasons why mm-hmm. that dynamic continued. Yeah. And, I mean, you and I had those conversations uh-huh. of, okay, what's my role? Right. Like, why do you have two? Right? And for me, it was... You know, I knew that you specialized in trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were recommended to me by a friend. And, you know, sexual trauma was not my other therapist's specialty. Mm-hmm. I mean, although obviously she works with it. Um, she's not EMDR trained. Right. And that was something that I had learned about and heard from several people could be really helpful uh-huh. with trauma. And so, you know, like, I, I felt like I... I needed to stay with her because she, she, she helped me be stable kind uh-huh. of a thing. Right. And sh- she helped me with like the everyday stuff. And then you and I worked on more of the trauma piece right. and the, you know, and, and kind of going back to my childhood. Mm-hmm. Whereas with, with my other therapist, it was just what's going on now. Like here and now functional mm-hmm. skills. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, how do I remain functional? Yeah. <laughs> Working through trauma. Right, right. So, um, well, and, and you and I, I mean, when you kind of were talking about like, I, I would be interested in sharing my story on a podcast episode, you and I kind of had a brief, like stroll down memory lane. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I think what we didn't see at the time when we started this dynamic of two therapists and you still working with both was how the relationship piece was going to be worked on simply in that dynamic. Yeah. And it definitely was. And Because I did work with my current therapist and my previous therapist to you at the same time, and they didn't know about the other. Right, right. Um, Because I tried to go about the avenue of, can I work with both of you? And they both said no. Right. And um, the therapist that I left said that it was because I struggle with relationships, and so she didn't want our therapy sessions to be me coming in and talking about my relationship with the other therapist and, like, you know, whatever the dynamic was Uh and vice versa. Um, And so I'm a little oppositional defiant, and I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to do it anyways, and you just won't know because I'm not, like, I'm not (laughs) going to do the thing that made you say no. Uh And it was really hard to... When this, when I decided to stop working with this other therapist, to tell my other therapist to you, there's a lot of therapists <laughs> um, that I had been seeing that therapist simultaneously and had lied by omission, uh-huh. right? Um, but again, I had worked with uh, my other therapist for so long that she just totally normalized it and was like, "That makes total sense to me," mm-hmm. and 
you know, and just, just said, especially considering your history, having a backup, like in case you lose a therapist, totally makes Mm -hmm. sense so that you're not just out in the cold. Right. Which ended up being a really good thing because I would have been out in the Mm -hmm. cold if I had just been working with um, the one, the one. Yeah. So, yeah. And it was, my other therapist was able to kind of help to keep me grounded uh, when you were pushing me mm-hmm. <laughs> and challenging me pretty drastically for me. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's definitely been a long journey. Um, and I decided to go back to, to school uh, to get a master's in social work uh, because... I, I love being a recreational therapist, but I'm limited mm-hmm. in what I can do and what I can offer. And I feel like because of the things that I've been through and getting to a place where I feel like I can finally own my story mm-hmm. and and own all and of it. And not just be the story. Right. Not just be the story and not be a product of my story. Right. You know, not be the right. victim of my story. But like I've been able to, in, in my practicums, actually share my story uh, with with uh, some of the clients that I worked with and some of the parents of the clients mm-hmm. that I worked with. And it's been actually an amazing therapeutic tool, especially for the parents. I mean, and, and the kids to give them hope mm-hmm. that, you know, things aren't mm-hmm. always going to be the way that they are. Right. Well, and, and that some of the diagnoses are not life sentences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, I worked with a girl that was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and, you know, parents were convinced and I don't know what materials they read, but they were definitely on the, this is a life sentence mm-hmm. and she's always going to be this way and she's probably going to die and, you know, she's going to end up killing herself and, you know, all of these things. And, and that was actually the first uh, family that I shared part of my story with. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they thanked me and said, you know, we like you. And so, (laughs) so if our, if our daughter turns out anything like you, like we would be so happy with that. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, which was like super nice to hear. Right. And I've gotten to the point where, you know, I, I, I want my story to mean something Mm -hmm. and it means something to me, but I feel like it's made me a better clinician as a rec therapist and that it will make me a better therapist. Mm -hmm. And that if my story and my experience can help somebody else, like, why would I not share yeah, that? Right. So. And and people love these stories. <laughs> I mean, they do. Like some of the, the where people are sharing their stories are some of my most popular episodes. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, I've, I've worked on attachment a lot with you mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I don't think I... I, I didn't really develop a secure attachment when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know how to have them. Right. And you've had to earn the ability to have secure attachments back. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's been rough, but it's also been, it's, it's been nice to kind of not be so anxious if I don't talk to somebody every day or uh-huh. if they don't respond to me 
right know, away. We had right to work away. on that a lot. Like we did. I had to say like, Hey, <laughs> I have a life. <laughs> sometimes I, or sometimes I read your text and I can't respond. And then I forget, like I do forget things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because you know, if you don't respond, it means that you don't care about me right. and I'm not important. I'm abandoning you. And I'm like, right. no, no. Like, <laughs> right. Right. And send my, me a reminder. Hey, right. did you forget to respond? <laughs> I'll say yes. Thanks for the reminder. Yes. And that is something that I super struggled with, with my other therapist. Cause you're actually really good at responding. <laughs> and my other therapist is not, she's pretty terrible, which was so horrible for so long, but actually ended up turning out to be a good thing. Uh-huh. Um, because you know, I got to a point where I was able to recognize that it's not about me. Right. And that's just how she yeah. is. And so right. if she doesn't respond and, and I can hold her not responding for like two days, you know, before sending her a reminder text. Right. It's not like, hey, did you get my text? Hey, did you get my text? <laughs> hey, are you ignoring me? You know, right. like yeah, every hour. Well, and you and I also talked, like I've never met your other therapist. I've never actually had a phone call with her. But I think you and I had talked and I was like, I, I think I was aware that there were things that you talked about me to her about mm-hmm. and vice versa. Sometimes mm-hmm. you talked about her to me. Mm-hmm. And I think like neither of us freaked out about that, right? Like it was just like, that's going to happen. And I'm glad you have somebody to process this mm-hmm. who isn't going to like badmouth me, right? Or uh-huh. like, oh yeah, stop that. Like isn't threatened by the other therapist, <laughs> right, right? But that can walk you through that and be like, oh, okay, what do you want to do? And how about this? And what about that? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were times with her where, you know, interrupted the therapy session for a little while, mm-hmm. but then they resumed mm-hmm. and everything, you guys worked through it, right? Mm-hmm. And vice versa with me. I don't know that it necessarily interrupted our sessions, but mm-hmm. it interrupted like what we could talk about in the sessions. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that was something that was really helpful with you because when I brought issues that I was having with my other therapist to you, you said, you know, that's what you said. You said, I'm glad that you can I think this is good that you're mm-hmm. talking to me about this because the relational piece is what's most important. And right. if I can help you kind of work through that, then like that's what I'm supposed right. to be doing. Well, and and just all relationships are going to have bumps. Yeah. And that's not disastrous. Right. right. So, okay. Right. Let's let's work through that and you have somebody who's willing to work through it with you. Yeah, exactly. And and, and and stick with me through those right, bumps, right. you know, and and I'm grateful that you stuck with me through some <laughs> of our bumps, um, right? And you know, I, I I've learned what boundaries are, and feel like I've been able to detangle myself from enmeshed relationships mm-hmm. and from doing relationships in an enmeshed way, right? Because I I constantly needed that reassurance from other people, and I wasn't able to give it to myself. Mm-hmm. And well, and and part of the relationship defined who you were. Mm -hmm. And that's why you needed that constant, like, I don't know who I am without this. Mm -hmm. And, and that started to untangle, right? When you started to figure out who you were, Mm -hmm. you showed up differently in your relationships in your life. Yeah. Well, and I think for so long, struggling and being not okay was my identity. Uh And so it was uncomfortable to be okay. Right. And in fact, I remember we would have sessions where I'm like, I'm doing okay and it's weird. Right. And it's really uncomfortable and it's like anxiety provoking. Uh Right. Um, But 
you know. You didn't blow it up, though. I didn't. I didn't blow it up, which was my pattern Mm -hmm. forever. And I was really good at self-sabotage. Right. And, you know, but I, I've gotten to a place where, yeah, life definitely still throws me curveballs and, and and some pretty intense ones. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a friend pass away recently and it really shook me Mm -hmm. in a lot of different areas. And, you know, a couple of years ago, (laughs) I would have been a mess. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't, I would have missed work because I couldn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, it really would, would have affected my functioning. And yeah, it was hard, but I was mm-hmm. able to talk about what was hard. I was able to express and experience my sadness and my grief and the loss and everything else that it triggered. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, while there are some times when I still am afraid of emotions and the intensity of which I feel emotions, um, and that's more kind of it, in in the moment fear. When I'm not in that, like, I know that I can handle it, mm-hmm. you know? And there are still some times when I'm like, I can't do this. This is too much. But, I mean, my track record for the past, you mm-hmm. know, good amount of time mm-hmm. has been that well, I can. And I also think in addition to just the two therapists, you've developed some other relationships in which when you get to that place of like, I can't do this on my own, there are people who are like, I'm here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if they can't be there, right, I have other people that I can go right. to, and it's not about me uh-huh. if they're not there. Right. And even if nobody is able to be there uh-huh. in that moment, I buck You're up still and, okay. and, yeah. and have to be there for myself. Uh-huh. And, and I think that that's something that I, for a very long time, never thought that I would be able to do. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier in the podcast about kind of that I pushed you into, like, not living as a victim. Mm -hmm. And we had talked about like, as we've talked about this podcast episode, you had said like, I might bring that up. So I just wanted to, if you wanted to talk about that or for listeners who were like, how, how exactly did that happen? How did you get from there to there? (laughs) Well, I think I remember a very specific session that we had where I would, I was struggling with how you were responding to me Uh and you had called me out on basically making you responsible for something that was mine. And I completely disagreed. <laughs> and, and and we and we talked about it, but then we were stuck because uh-huh. cuz you were still like, "No, y- you were giving this to me and it's not mine." Right. And for a while I was like, "No, I I wasn't. Like this part is yours." Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? And um and we ha- we had a session where I was pretty shut down for most of the session. And like didn't really know what to say or what to talk about because I was struggling so much with where our relationship Uh was at, at, at that time. And, you know, at that time it was also, I didn't know if our relationship was going to continue because there were issues with insurance and, and things like that. And, um, and we finished our session and and I, I walked out and you didn't have a client after me. And so I came back in and I don't even remember what I said, but you're, (laughs) I do remember your response, (laughs) um, which was, I'm not going to have an enmeshed relationship with you. And that's going to feel like rejection and abandonment, but it's not. And, and I think that that stuck out to me so much because, you know, it was another example of you, of having somebody that wasn't reactive to me, Mm -hmm. um, but that still, you know, held a boundary and held, held me accountable. And offered relationship. Right. Just not that kind. Right. Exactly. And, you know, 
kind of, yeah, I'll still be here, you know, when you're ready. And, and I sent you a very long email <laughs> about all of the reasons that you were wrong. <laughs> and, and after that email, uh, you came into a session and you said something along the lines of clearly like what I've been doing, how I've been trying to help you isn't working. So I'm just going to listen. And, and, and I think that that, that was the turning point for me at, at that point, because you just listened and you were a sounding board and you weren't reactive. And although it, it had to do with you and our relationship, mm -hmm. you just held what my experience was. And I was able to work through and be like, oh yeah, I totally like <laughs> put that on you. And I totally was being a victim. And, and that was something that, that I needed to work through. Uh -huh. that I couldn't have somebody else tell me. Right. Because I'm oppositional defiant. <laughs> and, um, and because any kind of constructive feedback was an attack. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was wrong. And... Well, and in the past, I mean, you being wrong had cost you a lot of things in therapeutic relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that you allowing me to navigate that and to just be there with me and and be a witness to and sit in and walk with me on kind of on that journey was what I needed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you did the right amount of pushing, <laughs> right? To which I pushed back, uh -huh. you know, at first. But then when you kind of backed off, it really made me reanalyze and kind mm -hmm. of think through things and and I think that that was probably the first time that I was able to recognize okay like I I see what she's talking about mm. and it, it just kind of clicked of this like I put you in a lose-lose situation it didn't matter how you responded mm -hmm. I would have been upset mm -hmm. and well because I remember with that long email you had sent we went back a few times with email and like in my in my head, I was trying to be compassionate. I was trying to be empathetic, and like you'd send it back, and I was like, "Oh, she thinks I'm rude." Like, okay, let's try empathy again, and I'd send it back, and you were just like, "What?" And I remember just like, "I don't. I, I usually can communicate well what I'm thinking, but like," and so I think I just sent like a heart emoji, and you were like, "What the hell was that?" And I was like. I don't have words. Like, I'm just saying I care because I I don't know. That's and right. that's when I, I was forgotten. like, let's just talk about this in session because clearly I don't know how to say this. Well, and and that was actually, that's a was a pattern for me that, that also got me into a lot of trouble was trying to have conversations that really needed to be done in person mm -hmm. through text or email because that was safer. Right. You know, and maybe more confusing, but right. safer. Well, and and everybody is better. Most people, maybe not everybody, is you know they're better able to fully express and maybe say things that they wouldn't say in person, right? When they write it out, um, but because there's no tone or any of that in text, that you know I'm in this assuming the worst, right? And you know assuming that you want to get rid of me and mm -hmm. that you hate me and <laughs> whatever, you know. That yeah, when he sent the heart, I was like, "What does this mean?" <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I don't understand. 
what game are you trying to play with me? And I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> yes, that was a rough, that was a rough time for me <laughs> and for you, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, you know, I think you being willing to work through that with me and, um, and like I said, just be with me on, on that journey and sit with me in it mm-hmm. rather than you know, trying to get me to see it a certain way or, you know, trying to fix it or, you know, any of those things. Because, you know, another part of that was that I totally projected my... Another thing you said was, I am not your mother. Oh, right. (laughs) I have joked before about making t-shirts that I can wear that say, like, I am not your mother. And then on the back saying, I'm also not Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, Because I, I did. I projected a lot of, like... You're just trying to fix it. You're, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't even remember what all I projected on you because of, you know, experiences Mm -hmm. that I've had with my mom and, um, you know, and you pointing out, I'm not your mother, nor will I be your mother, Mm -hmm. nor will I assume that role in any way. Mm -hmm. And like one thing that you did that I always really appreciated and I think helped me a lot was you didn't use or fall into the power differential that is innately there between a therapist and a client. And you often would say, we're two adults, like, Mm -hmm. you know, we're working together and not like I'm this Mm all-knowing person and if you just do what I say, then you'll be fine. But, you know, and and you would say a lot, and, and I, and I, earlier on would ask you a lot what you were thinking uh-huh. because I was so concerned about like she thinks I'm crazy right and 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 so concerned about what you thought of me and so many times your response was I'm just sitting with you and uh-huh. I'm just present with you in in this experience and that was the first time that I had that response mm. um from somebody and so yeah I think it was a combination of a lot of things mm-hmm so, and I think too, being able to work with Jen during that time and have Jen be a sounding board mm-hmm. and be like, right. well, maybe, <laughs> maybe she doesn't hate you. Right. right? And, um, and for her to kind of help keep me a little grounded right. during all of that. I, I think it's one of the, like, it's not talked about the the therapeutic relationship with client and therapist is therapeutic in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And we don't really talk about that in school mm-hmm. and I don't really even know I how do. to teach it. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I talk about it in school. <laughs> um, I don't know that we even kind of know how to teach it. Like I think sometimes you have to have it modeled or mm-hmm. y- you experience that with a therapist who can do that. Right. Mm-hmm. That, you know, it's not necessarily about counseling and telling you what to do or do this worksheet. Mm-hmm. It's more of this like, what is this that we're creating and mm-hmm. what are you going to get from this? And what do we make of this? And somehow this relationship that we're creating can help you in the wounds and attachments that you're working through. Yeah. And I think that that was something that, again, I think that because I had my other therapist who I had worked with for so many years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like that, that relationship was safe. And well, not, not always it's gotten to, it's gotten to a point with both of you where like there, there hasn't really been anything that has sent me, you Mm -hmm. know, 
off off the charts emotionally right. or you know or if there is you know a struggle or a challenge like I'm able to actually talk about it right. have a conversation right. about it rather than just assume the worst and explode you know but that that was something that that you talked about as well of you know this relationship is what helps heal other relationships mm-hmm. and if you can learn how to do a relationship here then you can take that to your relationships outside of here mm-hmm. right um which you know again was was super helpful for me because you can't really tell somebody how to do a relationship right like people don't learn well it's not necessarily something that we think right it's not not it's not an intellectual process right and I so tried to make all of this an intellectual <laughs> process. And, you know, and that was also something that you challenged yeah. a lot in the beginning of like, okay, you can stay in your head, but you're not right. going to go anywhere. Right. And it's not until you allow yourself to get in your body and experience mm-hmm. and express that you'll really be able to heal. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I think that's one of the things particularly with eating disorders, but any of the addictions, I mean, addicts don't live in their body. They left their body a long time ago, right? Because there was too much trauma and they had to cope, right? I will often say to clients, like you had to get up and go to school the next day. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of learned how to disconnect head and body and learn to live in your head. And that's how you functioned. Mm -hmm. But the healing is in the body. Yeah. And I so fought for so many years, like, trying to intellectualize myself through Mm -hmm. my trauma and, and through things. And, um, there's a song that I remember the first time I heard was like, Oh, that's me. One of the lines says the furthest distance I've ever known is from my head to my heart. Mm. And like that, that was totally how I felt because it was like, I know all of this logically. Mm-hmm. I mean, I work in mental health. Right. You know, I have a lot of experiences. Like I can I can tell myself the steps to take. I can, mm-hmm. you know, I can tell like I know all of the answers. Mm-hmm. But I but I don't I don't know in my body. Right. I don't I don't know experientially what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And so that for me was a big part of my learning and my healing was you know, connecting my my head and my heart. Mm-hmm. And, and as a result, being able to connect with my heart with other people mm-hmm. um, and, and not in a, you need to fix me right kind of a way, which was how all of my connections had been. Yeah. Which is why they all exploded. Right. Um, well, I remember we, we talked at one point just about it. They're going to be different relationships and that's going to feel unsettling because what's in the relationship if it's not about you needing them. Yeah. And that's a whole different relationship when you don't need them, but you're in a relationship with them, not out of need, right? Not out of them being concerned for you. Yeah, exactly. And I think at, you know, at some point in my life that like love for me equaled other people being concerned for me Mm -hmm. or intensity within a relationship. Mm -hmm. And so if another person wasn't concerned about me or worried or trying to help or support me, then they didn't care and I wasn't loved. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was really hard initially and it did feel really uncomfortable to, to learn how to experience love and closeness and care differently mm-hmm. and in a more healthy way. Well, And to kind of let go and trust 
that it would happen. Right. Right. And yeah. And not making everything about me. Right. Which was also me being in a victim yeah. role and, you know, recognizing that I don't always get back to people like the second that they right. message me or that they call me and it has nothing to do with them. Right. And so learning how to detangle myself from everything being about me and everything meaning something about me and who I am mm-hmm. and my worth and, you know, and, and practicing going longer or further distances and having the relationship still be there, mm-hmm. you know, and, and again, learning that experientially. Right. Because again, I could cognitively tell myself, you know, I mean, and I think I, at one point with you even said like, actually, I think you might've asked me once, like, have I done anything to break your trust? Have I done anything mm-hmm. to make you think that I'm going to leave? And the answer was no, mm-hmm. you know, and cognitively I could see that I could recognize that, but I couldn't experience it. Mm-hmm for a long time. And so, you know, and I think also you responding to me differently when I would engage in a healthy way Mm. and the, the subtle reinforcement that I got from you when I wasn't in this, like, you need to fix me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and our, and our relationship shifted. Right. And, you know, it's gotten to the point where like, I don't ever want it to go back (laughs) to what it was. Right. You know, because those kinds of relationships really aren't fulfilling. No, and we not. keep trying to make them fulfilling, but they can't be. Right, right, and it's, you know, uh, I love Brene Brown, and she talks about hustling for worthiness, mm-hmm. and I always was hustling for worthiness, mm-hmm. um, and really struggled with owning and recognizing that like I was worthy and had worth simply because I am. Right, and and she talks about that with belonging, mm-hmm. right? And and I think there was a process for you of finally belonging to yourself yeah. that then got you out of hustling. Right, right. And and accepting, having com- self-compassion, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, that was something that you and I worked on mm-hmm. um, in, in EMDR even of, you know, visualizing mm-hmm. my childhood self and then my now self comforting. Mm-hmm you know, my inner child. Right. And when you first asked me to do that, I was like, hell no. (laughs) And was so resistant to it. But again, because I trusted you and because I trusted our relationship and trusted that no matter what I did, that you would still be there and be okay with me and my process, Mm -hmm. I was able to to do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it was really impactful because for so long I hated the five-year-old me that did these sexual mm-hmm. things that, mm-hmm. you know, were unspeakable. And, you know, still to this day, honestly, I haven't spoken all of my memories. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's part of the beauty of EMDR. Like, mm-hmm. I can say to you, like, you don't have to tell me what's going on for you. Like, mm-hmm. I don't I don't need to know what's happening in this moment for it to work. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, which which was also helpful mm-hmm. at times because there were times when I didn't right. want to verbalize what I was Well, and, and I remember kind about. of a tug of war in one of our sessions where I was kind of saying, like, you need to comfort yourself. Mm-hmm. And you were like, but I want you to. Yep. Right? Like, why won't you do it? And that was like, because I, I can't. Like, I mean, I can, right? But like. If you can't comfort you and your five-year-old, it doesn't matter if I can. Yeah. Like, that's something you have to do. Yeah. And, like, at first you were just like, no. <laughs> well, it was it was one of those things that, 
like for me to verbalize and acknowledge mm-hmm. and put out there that that was what I wanted just in and of itself even if your answer had been yes right was like it's was so scary and vulnerable and you know because if the answer was no then I would break uh-huh. um you know and that's in that moment how it felt and I, yeah I was <laughs> I was like I can't <laughs> Yeah, I remember that also. Yeah. Well, anything else before you wrap up? I guess I just, I don't know, want to communicate hope. Mm-hmm. Um, that that there's always hope. I, you know, I've been at the lowest of lows, and I've been in a very, very dark place that, you know, I had people who loved me that told me after I pulled myself out that they looked into my eyes and I was gone, mm. that my eyes were dead. And... It takes work and it takes effort and you can't do it alone, but you have to do the work mm-hmm. and like you have to do the work. Right. Nobody can do it for you. That was something else that you mm-hmm. drove home with me <laughs> and, and the work is hard and it can be painful and it can feel insurmountable, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's the thing with trauma work. Like we are going back directly into what you've been avoiding. Yeah. Exactly. And, and we're like, yep, we're going right back into the center of it. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it's like, you know, it's like asking somebody to run into a fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it'll be fine. Right. <laughs> You'll make it through, you know. And but like, again, like physically, mm-hmm. ex- experientially, that's what it feels like. Right. It feels like you are asking me to do something that will kill me. Mm-hmm. And. And, and it's terrifying. Well, because surviving was about disconnecting from it. Right. And, you know, that was another thing that you taught me, actually, that I really appreciated in saying that so much of what I did made sense mm. and and kind of validating my my ways of coping, even though they were ineffective and they weren't working mm-hmm. for me anymore. I remember you telling me you needed them at some point to survive. Mm-hmm. And that was how you survived. And your brain is pretty amazing mm-hmm. that it figured out how to survive. It right. worked for you then. It doesn't work for you anymore. Right. And and I think that that was, that was also a big part of me being able to accept. And, you know, and you, you, you really can't move forward until you accept what is. Mm-hmm. And I tried my damnedest right. not to accept what was. Right. But then when you do accept it meaning starts to come from the suffering, right? Meaning starts to come from the trauma. Yeah, exactly. And and it, and it the meaning is whatever you make it, right? The meaning is whatever you want it to be. Mm-hmm. And, and for me, you know, I, I, I find meaning in who I've become. I find meaning in being able to, to give back mm-hmm. and being able to empathize and sit with and hold other people's trauma Mm -hmm. um you know because if I had tried to be a therapist five years ago I would have been a really terrible one (laughs) because I couldn't have sit with sat with and gone on the journey Mm -hmm. with other people in their pain and their suffering and their trauma Mm -hmm. and if I if I can't go there with them then I'm not going to be able to help them Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much. I'm so glad that you came in and said, hey, I'd be willing to do this. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Thanks for letting me. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you being able to. And and I've said this to you just recently as we were talking about the podcast episode. But again, like it's always a privilege for me to like walk clients, like walk with them through this journey and then to like see them like really embrace it. And you're like, wow, like that's awesome. And it's always just, I mean, a lot of therapists will say like, this is why we do the work and that there's truth to that. Like, Mm -hmm. but it's one of those, like, again, like I've had people say to me, like, do you believe in change? Do you believe in making meaning from suffering? And I'm like, "I, I do, like I see it. And people with some very traumatic experiences and trauma stories end up becoming flourishing in their life and they bring meaning to it and it doesn't kill them. Mm-hmm. And so I have to believe in that. Like I I have to, like I see it. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it doesn't mean that life isn't hard. Right. Or that like once you get to that place of flourishing, that life isn't still life. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no magical thinking right. <laughs> anymore. Uh, and, you know, it, it's it's reality, but reality with hope mm-hmm. and being able to experience um, joy mm-hmm. when it comes. Right. Which I was never able to do because mm-hmm. I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Right. And so there, there's always hope. Yeah. Thanks. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. There's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.